so last night we were sitting down uh, eating some marionberry pie, which is a berry that I hadn't heard of, much like the thimbleberry you refer to in your book. So it was a sort of botanical cultural experience for me. Um, but you were talking about how, what you got up to when you sort of finished reading, uh, finished writing your book. It is always fascinating to watch people react to giant sequoia trees. Mm-hmm. Um, as I told you last night, I, I enjoyed doing that after the book. I also did that when I started the book. The biggest of all the trees is known as the General Sherman tree, perhaps not the best name, but that's a different story. Mm-hmm. And it is a, it's, it's, it's set up as sort of an odd monument. It has a fence around it, a low fence, a split rail fence, and a ring of an asphalt trail that's perhaps 25 yards from the base of the tree. And there are benches and viewpoints and exhibits. And a million people a year come from all over the world and stare at it. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's a round tree, as all trees are, but it has a front and a back in the human sense. And so you can sit over to the side and watch people walk up to the tree and particularly when I was starting the book, but again, after I had finished it, as I mentioned to you, I used to sit there with a clipboard and just write down some of the things people would say, which merged from the purely inarticulate <laughs> <laughs> to the, the expansive. Sure. And generally, they were all talking to each other. There's a, it's a place with more pointing humans than you can imagine. They're sure. all pointing at something. But they are, they, it may be as simple as, wow but they soon begin to try to turn it into something they recognize. They try to give it scale. Rangers sit there and stand there and talk and also try to do the same thing, try to point out that that branch is equivalent of 13 stories off the ground and is itself the size of a Volkswagen car Mm -hmm. and all kinds of silly things that give context but really don't necessarily add much wisdom. But it is an astounding place just to watch people react to nature because the tree is so far outside any human expectation, even the photographs, if you may have seen it before you get there, don't warn you very well. No. Just how large, how massive a monarch giant sequoia can be. And that's, of course, what fascinates us about the trees. What kind of things do people think? Like, what's the strangest thing you've heard people say? Have people seen, like, their relatives? Or, like, a, like the like people impose so much upon trees that it's... The thing they impose upon it is they reverse. Uh-huh. It's just like something, and they'll come up with something man-made. It's just like a building. It's just like a cathedral. It's just like a big bridge. And I think they miss the fundamental point that human things are like natural things. Mm-hmm. The natural things have been here for millions, hundreds of millions of years, and our creations have just arrived on the earth, for better or for worse, and we're just chasing nature and often even stealing nature's designs to try to build things. But people walk up and say, well, I saw something like this at Disneyland. Actually, in the northern part of Los Angeles, there's a a big concrete giant sequoia tree at one of the amusement parks. People say, it's just like, this is just like the tree I saw at the amusement park. (laughs) (laughs) And so to me, that's kind of this attempt to humanize everything, which Uh is something we all do. We live in a human world. We want everything to circle around us. We need to know our place in things. It's our mind... We don't see everything, but our mind interprets how we see it and we justify it by our mm-hmm. own perceived language across time. Yeah, we, human, we are humans and the world must be around us, which is sort of what our, the history of the last thousand years looks like, does it not? Yeah. We're telling that the world should conform to us and to our perception of what it ought to be, which mm-hmm. works sometimes. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare O oh, the oak and the ivy O oh, the 
Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From vegans eating soya to foresters growing sequoia, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. Despite being called Trees A Crowd, it's been a little while since I've spoken about trees, bark, roots and mycorrhizal fungal networks and so I have come to Oregon. I'm in the city of Bend. Named for the curvature on the Deschutes River, which it occupies, if you look to the west, you can see four glacier-clothed volcanoes presiding magnificently over the Cascade mountain range. And if you looked to your northeast... Well, that's, that's where I'm facing mm-hmm. now? Great. Uh, you can see the environmental historian, Dr. William C. Tweed. William, a native Californian, has both master's and doctorate degrees in history and has a career spanning over 30 years in the United States National Park Service. He worked as an historian, ranger naturalist, park planner, concessions management specialist, public affairs specialist, predominantly at Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, but spent the final decade of his career there as the park's chief naturalist. William, hello and welcome to Trees A Crowd. It's a pleasure to be with you. So there's so many things I want to talk about. But I guess where we should probably start is with the big trees. So what's, to you, what's your favourite thing about it? Is it the antibacterial bark? Is it its fire resistance? Is it its size? Its age? Its... The sequoia, I used to tell this to visitors often when I had time, to spend a lot of time talking to trees, talking trees with them. Mm-hmm. And that was, that the sequoia is not really that different from other trees. It, all the basic stuff that applies to trees applies to giant sequoias. Uh-huh. And therefore they look back at me and ask the obvious question, well then why does it Go turn so out so big. differently? How does it live so long? And the answer is, I believe, uh, uh, it's a matter of evolutionary strategy. The organisms that survive are the ones that have learned how to adapt and survive. Okay, there you have it. I used to love to compare it to a mosquito. Okay. How many sequoia trees are there versus mosquitoes? Not very many. It's not a strong ratio. No. Mosquitoes survive through what you might call a no deposit, no return strategy. You produce uncountable numbers, and no matter what you try, you can't wipe them out, right? Uh Sequoias use a very different strategy. They produce a tiny number of of individuals compared to, to, say, a mosquito. But how long does a mosquito live? You, know, you can squish it in your fingers in a second, right? And so, but the sequoia may live a couple thousand years. How much goes, what's the investment in making an individual sequoia? It's a very expensive organism. So what you have is a very long-lived, heavily armored, expensive organism strategy as a survival strategy. And to do that, you live a long time. If you live a long time, in a nice climate, you, your tree, you grow big. Mm-hmm. There's, no, no, there's no escaping it. Trees grow as long as they live, at least in thickness. In, in, in the, they continue to add to their diameter, sure. not to their height. So the sequoia is simply the opposite of a mosquito. A mosquito survives through numbers. The sequoia survives through armored individuals. If you wanted to find an equivalent animal of a sort, maybe a sequoia is the equivalent of like a Galapagos tortoise. Okay. That it's a heavily armored, very long-lived, slowly reproducing creature. And it's simply another strategy to survive. And so to me, that bundles together all those individual things. Mm-hmm. Why is it fire resistant? Why is it decay resistant? Why is it insect resistant? Why does it grow so tall? Those are all tools the tree uses to achieve longevity. And longevity is its alternative to large numbers as a survival strategy. And it's simply another expression of evolutionary biology. Um, and then there's one twist, and the tree couldn't care less. But the twist is this. 
we human beings are fascinated, forget about biology, we are fascinated by certain things. We like things that are big. Wherever we go on earth, we get excited by big things. We like grand canyons, we like tall buildings, we like big trees. We like Ayers Rock in Australia, right? Mm -hmm. We like that stuff. Number two, we are excited by longevity. The longer, the older something is, the more it excites us. I think that's a human jealousy. We, we, we respect longevity because we desire it. Psychological. Third, we love rare stuff. The harder it is to see something, the more it interests us. We go all over the world to see rare things, right? We go to museums in cities. We go to other continents to see. People come from Britain or Germany to see giant sequoia trees, as an example. Um, in the, uh, being a bit glib, but nevertheless, we rangers used to call this the trifecta of human interest. We like things that are big and old and rare, and there is nothing on earth that is bigger and older and rarer than a giant sequoia tree. And it pulls people in from all over the world because it's, the tree couldn't care less, but it is designed by, the things it does to survive as a genetic organism happen to coincide just beautifully with the human psyche, and hence our fascination. Which takes us on rather nicely to the story of naming, naming the tree and the fact that it wasn't always known to all the world as the sequoia. The sequoia name is indeed a good story. Uh, it's a compromise. It was a later compromise assigned. The name is full. I get it. It's the same urge. We want to capture things. We want to title them. The tree was effectively discovered by Euro-Americans in the early 1850s. Native peoples had known about the trees for thousands of years. But when the California Gold Rush occurred in 1849 and Americans and people from all over the world spilled into newly conquered California, it had mm -hmm. just been the treaty had just transferred from Mexico in the year before in 1848, they um, rather quickly ran into the sequoia trees. But there was no scientific capacity to speak of in California in the early 1850s. And samples were collected and shipped off around the world as the trees were first noted, mm -hmm. largely by miners or people working to support the mines. Are we talking saplings here or just seed base? Or what? Well, actually, they tried moving all kinds of things. But first they took um, a fellow named Loeb, an Englishman. One of these great English stories. An Englishman sent to the Pacific Coast. Everyone else is searching for gold. Mm -hmm. He is searching for plants that would be appropriate to sell to country estates in Britain. <laughs> and he's exploring the Pacific More Coast. More valuable than gold, surely. Well, they were. <laughs> um, he was looking for samples of fascinating plants because in the British horticultural tradition, uh, there was this urge to have exotic plants. I think that still shows all over Britain, does mm -hmm. it not? Somewhat dangerously so. We brought in a lot of invasive species that killed off the indigenous stuff as a yeah, result. Well, I've seen rhododendron forests yeah. <laughs> that yeah. have taken over. They're really not native Be Beautiful pests, unfortunately. Yes. Um, and so it, it fell. These samples were gathered. Both seed, there were seedlings, there were seeds. Um, turns out getting uh, in that era of barely at the beginning of the steamship era, getting live plants back to Britain was rather difficult to do from the Pacific coast. Mm -hmm. uh, in the early 1850s, getting anything much out of California except wealth and gold was pretty, and mail was pretty hard to do. Sure. But this fellow Loeb rushed back to Britain and took with him seeds that were sp sprouted successfully. And within a year, a nursery in Exeter was selling seedling giant sequoia trees for a guinea apiece, mm -hmm. which I believe in the middle 19th century was a very steep price. Uh, yeah, I mean, actors still only get paid a guinea a week to work. So. <laughs> and then this 
these samples of the cone and the foliage needed to be botanically described. And there was a whole set of protocols for doing so. And it fell to an Englishman to do that. And the Englishman had a very clear view of the world and he named the tree botanically Wellingtonia after the Duke of Wellington. Duke of Wellington. This was not well received uh, across the Atlantic. As the word trickled back to the, to the Americas, uh, the American populace was outraged that the British had done such a preemptory thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think the British thought it was preemptory. It's just what it's just what Imperial Britain it's was capable of doing. It's just a name. We just had to give it a name. Right. And just what, so happened that we named it after one of our own. I named it after a, a British hero. <laughs> um, this led to a counter name for there was an attempt by the Americans to name it Washingtonia. Uh -huh. after George Washington. Not that either Wellington or Washington had anything to do with the tree. They'd never been anywhere. Wellington, as far as I know, was never in North America. No. And Washington was never in the western three quarters of the continent. Mm -hmm. And so all of this was simply political posturing. But then it settled down. A compromise was struck in the way that such things happened by a Frenchman who broke through and pointed out that, in fact, under the rules of botany, Perhaps the tree did not deserve to be in its own genus, sure. but could share a genus with an existing tree that seemed to be closely related, a tree that had been named earlier, which was the other redwood in California, the one that was along the coast and had been discovered by Europeans clear back in the late 18th century because you could sail right up on a ship and look at them mm -hmm. from the beach. And that's what we now call the California or coast redwood. It had been named Sequoia. But we don't even know where that name comes but from. Yes, now there's another complication, <laughs> because this was given, actually, um, it was a Frenchman who said we ought to apply the Sequoia name, but it had been a German named Endlicher who had actually given the name to Sequoia, and he had not written down where he got it. Uh -huh. And to this day, we are still busy projecting what we want Sequoia to be. There's sure. been a, an endless urge in America that the Sequoias should be named for a person named Sequoia. Uh -huh. There is a person named Sequoia, spelled totally differently. Uh, a Cherokee Indian from the 18th century, who a brilliant man, who actually invented um, a written form of Cherokee that was easier to learn than the Roman alphabet in English. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, they were, and until the uh, the Americans threw the Cherokees out of the United States and sent them to the Great Plains, they had newspapers they were printing in their own language and uh -huh. all around. Amazing story. But there was an Indian named Sequoia, S-E-Q-U-O-Y-A-H, instead of S-E-Q-U-O-I-A. Well, I think it's fair to say the name came from there. I mean, where else would it have come from? Well, there is, but see, there is absolutely no evidence. Okay. And one is supposed to have evidence for such things. <laughs> there is, there's been a great deal, every, the last couple of years, there's been a great deal of uh, speculation back and forth again. Uh, a large, elaborate paper saying, well, it's a perfectly plausible that it's named after Sequoia the Indian. And then another long and elaborate paper pointing out that, in fact, Endlicher was trying to create a sequence of trees, that all these different structures of tree, and that, and my Latin is not very good, but the Sequoia is a derivative of sequer, to follow. Sure. And that this was the sequence, sequence. tree, it was the missing piece in Endlicher's sequence of trees. So he named it Sequoia. But that's supposition as, as well. well. When you enter the park, as you discovered when you made your visit, there's a giant carved Indian head from mm -hmm. the 1930s that sort of calls up Sequoia, but does not actually, it's a Sequoia National Park, but it's not 
officially Sequoia the Cherokee. Actually, it's a face-off, an American coin from the early 20th century, a nickel. Sure. (laughs) And so in the end, it's just a confused mess. You can make what you want out of it, but there's no hard evidence for any of the origins of these names. What's fun about this is, of course, in the British-speaking world, Wellingtonia ceased to be a botanical name, but in much of in Britain and in still in much of the the, the, the old Commonwealth, uh, it's still the common name. It's yeah. not the botanical name, but it's the common name for the plant. A few years ago, I was in Christchurch, New Zealand, and mm-hmm. I walked down the street and said, "I know what that tree is." And there was a big uh, sequoia. They were, they were transported all over the world yeah. uh, and planted, and. You walk up to the base. It was a tree seven, eight feet in diameter. It was a sign that this tree was planted in the late 1850s during the New Zealand gold rushes, and it's a Wellingtonia. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure the name in many gardens in Britain is still Wellingtonia. There's, as, as I was saying last night, doing the research for this interview, I discovered that there's a grove of, of, of redwoods in the New Forest, which I didn't even know exist, mm-hmm. existed. And I'm intrigued to go and see how they are labelled back there. I would hope that we have called them Sequoia. Gigantia, but I... Sequoia dendron gigantia dendron. now. That's the there most recent attempt to re... Did they, why did they put in the dendrons? Because that's tr- tree giant or... It was eventually decided. Botanists have their own... You, you have a, what a great aunt who was mm-hmm. a botanist. And botanists have their own world. <laughs> and you know, the bot- botanical nomenclature is intended to represent the relationships between plants and the evolutionary development. Uh-huh. And so it was eventually decided after many decades that... The giant sequoia of the Sierra Nevada, which had been called for many years Sequoia Gigantea, that's the name the Frenchman had applied, was in fact a little too distant structurally from the coastal redwood, the Sequoia sempervirens, to share the genus name Sequoia, Okay. the generic name. And so it needed to be have another name. Now, under the strict rules of botany, it should have gone back to Wellingtonia, but no one could stomach that. And so breaking the rules of botany, it got a new name. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're supposed to go, you know, go backward yeah, yeah, forward yeah, yeah. in botany if you can. And in all scientific names, in fact. Not and it already botany. had a unique name which had been disregarded. So it, I didn't know that. That's not in your book. No. And <laughs> you can't put every, it's like an interview. You can't put everything in a book. No. And so it was decided to call it Sequoia Dendron. Trendron, of course, means tree. Yeah, yeah. Is there going to be a rebellion within the botany circles to want to go back to calling it sequoia what i'm saying well yeah. sequoia dendron has been on the books now since about 1940 19 okay so, so i think it's probably <laughs> that past. and so you have the sequoia gigantea the wellingtonia the sequoia dendron and the california big tree and the sierra redwood and the, and on and on and on and this tree has been nothing if not rich in names well we'll just call it the big tree for or the california one. big tree the oldest <laughs> and still my favorite name um, the other story you were just telling me was about how not only in terms of trying to scientifically classify things, in terms of the colloquial names for things, the General Sherman wasn't potentially going to end up being called the General Sherman tree. The largest of the giant sequoias, which therefore means the largest single tree in the world, is a tree we today call General Sherman. It's in the giant forest of Sequoia National Park. It's a very large tree. Mm-hmm. You've seen it. I've seen it. It has a basal diameter in excess of 12 meters uh, it's the equivalent of a 25-story building. It's a huge thing. Unfathomable. Uh, sort of beyond imagination. To your, yeah. to, We're describing it here for folks who are listening to us, but you really have to see it. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 people often ask us, why is it named after General Sherman? And General Sherman, for those who don't follow these details, was one of the key um, generals on the winning side in the American Civil War of the 1860s, a century and a half ago now. Mm-hmm. 
Um, for many years, the park stuck to the official story, which said that the tree had been named by a man named Wolverton in 1879. He has a car park named after him now. A yeah, car park and a, a meadow pic- and a, a creek area. and a yeah. picnic area. He was one of the early cattlemen before the park was established who sure. was hanging out there. Um, and that he had s- discovered the tree in one of those ways that makes you suspicious, he discovered the tree on a specific day in August of 1879 and had immediately been impressed by its size and named it after General Sherman, under whom he had served in the war. Mm-hmm. And this was the official story written down in the brochures and was the answer given to people from the American South who visit the tree and say, why would you ever name a tree after a rapacious general? <laughs> and we would always answer back in the Ranger days when I was one and say, well, it's an accident of history. We're sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, we, if we, we used to say, well, if we were naming it today, we wouldn't name it after General Sherman, but history is history and here you have it. And then this past year, we got uh, somebody asked some questions and we got curious and applied some of the newer digital tools to researching broad amounts of material. Someone said, can we really prove that story? It had always been too precise for me. Mm-hmm. Um, why would a cowboy know the exact day he discovered a tree? <laughs> it just didn't ring right to me. Mm-hmm. And so we went back and did some broad literature searches about, first of all, how far back was the name being used? Sure. Um, and found that there was a full, several decades passed between the, the supposed moment of naming and the use of the name. That made it a little suspicious. That the earliest names we could find for the tree were not General Sherman, but another charming story. Prior to the establishment of the park, there had been an unsuccessful attempt to create a socialist utopia based upon logging <laughs> to cut down the giant sequoia trees, or at least some of the forest. Mm-hmm. They had named the tree. They had discovered it and concluded it was the biggest tree, though there are several others that look just as big and that sure. aren't as well known. They're not quite mathematically, but they're very close. Well, socialist logging fraternities aren't the best at maths. So. <laughs> well, you'll love the name they gave to the tree. Um, they named the tree after, I think, a resident at that time of London, not Wellington's descendants, but Karl Marx, who I believe lived <laughs> in Britain for some time, did he not? Yeah, he did. Yeah. And so they named it the Karl Marx tree. Brilliant. This led to a later joke that, of course, it was a big red tree. So, <laughs> But at any rate, um, and that commune existed for about five years and collapsed about the time the park was created, partly because the park was created sure. and they never got title to the land. So they never got to cut the trees. Once the park was created, which occurred in 1890, the first custodians of the park were soldiers from the American army. Mm-hmm. The government needed somebody who could ride a horse and wander around in the woods and soldiers were better than most of those. We sure. were just coming out of our American um, Indian wars with the Native Americans in the West and we had a rather large cavalry. <laughs> And so, and we weren't in India, so we had to do something with them. And so we sent them to national parks like Yellowstone and Yosemite and Sequoia. Sure. And our best supposition now, because this is when, when we study the literature and, and do the computer searches to find the oldest citations, it's within the first couple of years of the army that the General Sherman name appears without comment. And so I think the supposition now is that General Sherman was given by those soldiers he shortly after 1890 to erase Karl Marx. And we should give Karl Marx a little credit. This is before, before communism, as we knew it in the 20th century, had existed, and Karl Marx did not have the context he might have come later to have. I think even if you have negative connotations with communism, I think it's probably fair that he's not called Karl Marx. But I, I think I'd rather a tree was named for a philosopher or an, or an artist than to be named for a military general. What well, the heart of this, of course, is, the, is it another human conceit that we should name the trees after ourselves. Yeah. What would you do? Well, it's interesting, I think. 
the the comparable modern story occurs in the in the, the Redwood National Park. This is the other type of tree in California, mm -hmm. the, the along the north coast of California. There, the competition is endlessly for the largest, tallest tree. Sure. The sequoias of the Sierra are biggest by volume. The California coast redwoods are the tallest trees in the world. And the tallest tree in the world is called the tallest tree. <laughs> not poetic, but then again, not laden with baggage either. No. So might this simply be the biggest tree, the biggest big tree? There'd be a whole lot less to explain. <laughs> Do you think that's right? Do you think we should... Or would you, where would you link? If you could either remove all names or have them known just for the sheer volume of what, what would you go for? There was a time in, when I, many, in my ranger years when I was responsible for a, quite a while, for two decades, for all the trail signs in, giant, in the giant forest. Mm -hmm. We have an extensive trail system, about 40 miles of trail in the grove. And we had an extraordinary number of signs. Because all these trails had all these junctions and all these destinations, and we had signs on trees and all viewpoints and all kinds of things. We began to reduce the number of named features, but we didn't go the whole distance because mm -hmm. we learned something valuable in the process. And that is, again, about the human mind, not about trees. So I don't think they care about us much. And that is that our goal in the park was to get people out of their cars and onto the trails and strolling about and that people needed destinations. Mm -hmm. You could tell them to go walk, walk a trail called the Circle Meadow Trail, and they'd say, okay, and you say, but on the Circle Meadow Trail, there's, there's the bear's bathtub, <laughs> which actually is two giant sequoia trees growing very close together with a, if you can imagine, a reciprocal fire scar. Uh, sure fire scar on each of the two trees, but, so there's a, a dark there's hole a between the two and that holds water. And sometime 100 years ago, somebody saw a bear splash in it. So it became the bear's bathtub. Well, people will go to see that. It gave them a destination. Is it silly? Probably. Did it get them on the trail? And did they have a good time because they went? Absolutely. Yeah. Bear's bathtub or not. And so we discovered that a certain number of names were appropriate. And fundamentally, in the park, we stopped naming things uh, about the beginning of the Second World War and have named almost nothing in the succeeding now almost 80 years. Sure. And have unnamed a good deal, but not all. Sure. And it's better on the whole to keep historic names than to get into the conundrum. If you're going to name them now, then what values do you apply? And that oh, well, is a whole other set of values. Yeah, the Kim Kardashian sequoia would probably Gosh. draw a big audience. Um, the National Forest down to the south of us, a different administration altogether, I will be uncharitable, sort of got dragooned, as we say in the States, I mean forced into naming a tree and we thought in the park this was kind of funny after um, our president, the second president, Bush. So we ended up with a bush tree, which, if nothing else, we <laughs> thought was a sort of odd construction. <laughs> um, let's talk a bit about you, and then we'll go back to the trees. So you were born in California. I'm a Californian. I grew up in the great Central Valley in a little farm town that is, like so many places, no longer little. <laughs> and your parents were teachers, Mary? Yes, public school teachers. And did they bring you up to be outdoorsy, or was that a natural part of growing up there? Like it was, it was a couple of things. I grew up inside of the Sierra Nevada on a clear day, and we didn't have as many as we wanted, but you could see the mountains. And uh, when you look out on a clear day, and there's a mountain range that's almost three miles high, forty miles out of town, mm -hmm. it catches your attention. Yeah, I grew up in a town three hundred feet above sea level, barely a hundred meters, but I could see peaks over thirteen thousand feet high from the street I lived on. So yeah, I grew up in that shadow, and then. And did they take you into them? Yes, my dad just... was a school teacher, so I had summers off. 
I don't think he was an enthusiastic camper, but he loved to wander and look at landscapes. Sure. And so, because we were on a school teacher's budget, we went camping. <laughs> and we wandered all over the American West. And so I was exposed to a, a wonderfully now, in hindsight, to all kinds of environments. What do you remember in particular? I remember seeing gigantic open spaces, like learning to appreciate deserts, learning to understand something of the structure of the American West, that up means cool and green and down means dry and hot, mm -hmm. a fundamental truism that uh, Europeans wrestle with when they first hit the States. <laughs> <laughs> they don't understand that, but it comes around. You learn pretty quickly. We work it out. <laughs> you work it out because it doesn't take long because it whacks you if you don't pay attention to it. Um, Do you have a, a, a favorite? I learned to enjoy a whole bunch of different environments. Uh -huh. I learned something that many people never acquire. I learned to treasure the freedom of desert. Sure. The, the, that huge open spaces. To me, still the greatest freedom uh, is to camp on the desert with nothing but emptiness as far as you can see and be totally by yourself or just with your own party. Uh, I learned the joy of the, the Red Rock, the Colorado Plateau country of northern Arizona and mm -hmm. Utah. And I, we're headed, my wife and I, to that country again in a few weeks for a, yet another adventure there. I learned the, to appreciate the hometown mountain range, the Sierra Nevada. And I stumbled into work. I was exposed to rangering fairly early because in the days when I was growing up, although my dad not, did not do this, he had many uh, teaching uh, colleagues who spent the summers as park rangers. It was mm -hmm. a common thing in those days to fill out your teaching job with a summer ranger job. So I remember going to National... So we're in the 60s? 70s? Yeah, this would be in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s. Okay. And so I remember going, I remember going to Bryce Canyon in Utah to visit one of my dad's ranger friends, and we hung out, and he talked about being a ranger. So, And then I simply stumbled into a job uh, fresh out of high school when I was getting ready to go to college and just needed some money hauling suitcases at a lodge up in the park because it was a local place that hired in the summer, and I was 18 years old and needed a summer job. How long were you working in the park before you decided to go, uh, go to university? I was initially working in the park while I took my education, okay. undergraduate and graduate. Um, initially, I worked for the hotel company for a while. Then I discovered it was much more fun to be a summer ranger. So I got a job as a summer ranger. I was working on a doctor's degree in history. Mm -hmm. And by the time I had wrapped that up in the middle 1970s, it had occurred to me I had sort of a career choice before me. Uh, I had by now been able to sort of see the, the career opportunities in national park work, which I had found was very pleasant mm -hmm. and sort of and rewarding. And, and was it outdoorsy? Like what, what, what At was... the lower levels, yes. You know, you work in anything long enough, you end up in an office, I swear. <laughs> but uh, yeah, at the entry levels, yeah, very much outdoors work. I had been training to be an academic. Okay. I had now completed a doctorate in colonial Latin American history, which I a whole other world that I found interesting. It's, it's, it's fun to study okay. things. <laughs> you never know, you may not ever use it, but it's fun to learn about them anyway. Was that the most interesting part of your historical studies, or was that just what you ended up specializing in? It's what I focused on. I focused in the world of colonial Latin Americanist, I was a North American borderland specialist. Uh, that being sort of the frontier between the modern world, the frontier between the Hispanic and Anglo cultures. Mm -hmm. What had been until the 19th century the frontier between the Hispanic, the Hispanic colonial world, and the Native American cultures, and it, you'll notice that that border is not radically changed. What was once the first kind was now the other kind. Mm -hmm. There's some reasons for that. Um, it was basically a way to study the Spanish Southwest sure. from a different perspective, to look at the southwestern United States and see it not as an expression of British colonial expansion, which it wasn't 
but really as an expression of the the limits that were, could be achieved by the Spanish colonial wording world moving out of New Spain, out of Mexico, okay. and running into environmental limits that they could not be go beyond. Um, and so I and I like the Southwest, so it was an interesting way to study that world from a very different perspective. And were you interested in looking at it from an environmental perspective or from I, the social perspective? What I well, I discovered you couldn't separate them. That's what got interesting. What I discovered, what has been sort of the bias of my intellectual life, is that it's silly to separate them. That if you, the only true way to understand history is history is based on geography, which is based on ecology and 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 the world upon which it occurs. Uh, and the same thing, you can't understand modern landscapes without understanding how they've been occupied and who's used them and what their goals were. Mm -hmm. And I've always enjoyed, it's the overlap that makes life interesting. That's where I think the big questions about our human nature and our world are best found. Do you think in the same way that you can look at the earth upon which we live to see why we've developed, do you think you can do the inverse of that and use topography and geography and geology to see how we're going to develop and move forward? It's harder to move forward. It's certainly easy to understand where we are now as a result of what we found. Um, a huge question we will face in the future is, because it's one we chat, we, we Americans, we humans, we modern Western humans anyway, try to escape every day. How can we get beyond those limits? Uh, I tend to believe largely we cannot. Uh -huh. That doesn't make me in the majority party there. Uh, you know, modern humanity is about escaping limits. Everything I've learned in the since I went to college a very, very long time ago, is that we don't escape those limits. We sometimes can delay the consequences. We may have a whole lot of delayed consequences coming due right now. Do you think you've got that mindset partly because you've been working for an organization that's been trying to preserve the primeval and keep things still? It was a part of it. I, was I think that played a part of it. There is something about being in a national park that is on a mountaintop that comes very close to bringing to physical life the idea of the ivory tower. I can tell you a mountaintop is a much better ivory tower than a university, hmm. if you know the cliche of looking down on the rest of the world from your, your haughty position. Well, it's nothing like being on a 7,000-foot mountain, <laughs> looking down on the lowlands to see what's going on down there and feeling like you're a social critic. You may not always be right, but you certainly feel you have perspective. Sure. What's your favorite thing about... Uh, well, I'll ask this question first. Which is your favourite, Sequoia or Kings Canyon? Oh, two children. How do you how do you choose? You've got it. Yeah. Take one of them down to the river in a Hessian sack and drown it. Ah, uh, no. That's really dark. Yeah, that is, that is. And you know, those Hessian sacks have a bad reputation in the States. You got you know, you know the British got the British Crown sent Hessian soldiers to the United States to put down the revolution. Did we now? You did indeed. So you, I will hold you personally. <laughs> I'm really sorry. So Hessian sacks. I don't know. Um, I will explain, I will dodge your question shamelessly. You're really good at doing that. <laughs> and I will give you a, 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 an alternative response. Okay. The two parks are very different. Uh -huh. It's worth mentioning that they, they share a border. They, they are, are contiguous. contiguous. They have different histories. They were created at different times, almost 50 years apart. Both are quite large. Uh, together they cover about 1,200 square miles. I'll let you convert that into hectares. Lots. Okay, that's a good number. Lots, I agree. Uh, so they are both big places. Uh, they have separate histories. They have been managed. Uh, they were merged administratively in the Second World War temporarily and have yet to be separated. Okay. So they're, they were operated by a single superintendency today. And I was part of that, that staff that oversaw both parks. Sequoia, I'll be parochial. Sequoia simply has the best of all the big trees. The biggest the trees. Monarchs, yeah, the they have the, the biggest groves, the biggest individuals. The, of the uh, 10 largest trees in the world, five of them are in one grove, the one you visited, the giant forest. Mm -hmm. 
um, in, the, in the Sequoia National Park, the General Sherman tree, perhaps not the ideal name, but nonetheless what we call it, largest tree, single trunk tree on earth. You can get into a long, complicated discussion of what's the biggest living thing. We'll go sure. there some other time. Um, but these, for monarch sequoias, and we often use that very word, as you did. You picked that up from us, I suspect. Yeah, I'm the very so. biggest trees we call monarchs. Uh, and because they are so imposing, so gigantic, so hard to ignore. The best of them are, and the best place to see them is the giant forest, just as you did. You can, do, you can walk for miles in that grove. Mm -hmm. Grove covers about three square miles, has about 2,000 trees that are bigger than 10 feet, what, three meters in diameter, something like that. However many measurements you say right now, that doesn't work do until you see them. Now you have to go. Um, Kings Canyon has some sequoias. You saw them at the yeah. Grant Grove. But. Kings Canyon is perhaps in the 48 states of the United States, the ultimate wilderness park. And by wilderness, I mean it in the American sense, not just a wild place, but a specifically legally unroaded place, a place where there is no permanent human habitation, where there are no, the only way to travel is on the ground, mm -hmm. either by foot or on horseback. Uh, and that's a peculiarly American definition of, a, of an English language word with a broader original meaning. But we, we capitalize, we call it capital W wilderness, and mm -hmm. it is a, a wilderness defined by the Wilderness Act of 1964, which defined the very rules I just quoted back to you. And Kings Canyon has huge amounts of alpine and subalpine wilderness. It's the very best of the High Sierra. The John Muir Trail runs through the heart of Kings Canyon Park. On the Muir Trail, 200 miles, what, something over 300 kilometers long. Well, it's why I first, it's why I went to Kings Canyon before I went to Sequoia. I went all the way down to, I, can't, I think they just call it Road's End or whatever it is, all the way down mm -hmm. to the bottom. And you descend, I think, I think the difference in altitude in Kings Canyon is more than the Grand Canyon. It's huge. Yeah, it's, it's, you just keep going down and descend and descend and descend. But you end up at the bottom, there's this wonderful blue crystalline river running through, mm -hmm. which eventually gets to uh, an outcrop of rock called Muir's Rock, which is where he gave his lectures, talks about the, his journeys and his travels. And it was sort of, for me, it was a bit like going to Mecca, if you will. To Americans, he's known in a number of different ways. But uh, of course, born in Scotland, in Dunbar, uh, came, immigrated very young, about 10 years old, um, grew up on a farm in the Midwest, um, eventually came to California, was enamored of the Sierra Nevada, was charmed and overwhelmed by what he found, spent the rest of his life in the Sierra Nevada or near to it, became over time the founder of the Sierra Club, which started off as a, as a small mountaineering club in the San Francisco Bay Area and has grown to be, of course, an international uh, political organization trying mm -hmm. to protect the environment. It was the early Sierra... Mir had visited the Kings Canyon back when he was uh, first came to California, but the, the, the episode you quote of sitting on the rock on the riverside with the towering gland, you know, vertical granite cliff several thousand feet on each side of him, that dates from his old age, from his Sierra Club days, when the Sierra Club began to take its membership into the Sierra each summer. I read about him taking Teddy Roosevelt for a camping trip. Or that was in Yosemite. Okay. Same idea, about the same time, actually. Sure. Um, the idea was to get people to appreciate the Sierra and try to protect it. And so at that place where the poetically named place, the park calls Roads End, top got one of the great failures of naming. <laughs> at any rate, well, the road does end there, that's true. It's descriptive, if not very poetic. <laughs> but anyway, that was uh, a popular campsite long in the decades before the road was built for the sure. Sierra Club. That might bring in two or 300 people in camp for a month. Well, there, I, was, there were three other cars there when I was there. Yeah, well, you it saw it at its best. Wonderfully quiet. And so they would have these big conclaves. And... 
basically the the preaching to the choir, trying to trying to get more energy into protecting these places. There's a few sort of illustrations of, of the event. I'm not sure I've seen a photo, but there's certainly a few drawings I've seen of it. And he looks like Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. It's mm-hmm. it's been sort of it's recycled imagery at its very best. Well, many many Californians, many Americans have deified Muir, those of a certain. Do you? No, but I find him influential. He, you, we remember the people in history who speak to our current time, mm-hmm. and we can still find a way to understand. Muir's good at that. He was one of the first Americans, uh, if you if you will grant him that status, since he lived the great majority of his life in in, in California, two thirds of it. He saw that we would eventually become be an urban nation, and that we would need the beauty of nature to sustain our psyches. And he was saying that in the 1880s and 90s, and, and he lived until 1914, and the preaching and writing mm-hmm. on that basis. And that turned out to be a very appropriate message for the 20th and 21st centuries to accept. It resonated with us because it turned out it clicked. It yeah. was true. It turned out we did need those places. And so the places he celebrated became national parks. He wrote books about them celebrating what was special. One of them right here. Yeah. Although he was a Victorian writer, he was not as dense as, you know, it's awful hard to read some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still read Muir. I think it's, I think it's thrilling. It's like adventure writing at its very best. Yeah. He worked, worked really hard at that writing. Mm. I ran across a wonderful thing about Muir a few years ago. You could, you, some of the things you can only do in the modern world for a literature study. Someone took... Only a giant computer could do this. They took all of all the uh, all the combined works of John Muir and put them in a computer, and then started comparing it to the things he'd been taught as a child. The Muir had been taught all yes. that. Yes, yeah. and of course, what he was taught, he he had a Scottish upbringing in the Scottish Enlightenment, and not for a particularly enlightened family. He had a very strict fundamentalist father, but had been brought up in the educational system of Scotland, where the the, the rod was not spared. Right. Mm-hmm. And by the time he was 10 or 11 years old, he had memorized all the Old Testament and two-thirds of the New Testament, that classic kind of sure, education. Sure. And it turns out that the primary, the strong correlations that gave John Muir his language were the King James Bible and Robert Burns. Okay. And go back and look, and you'll say, oh, of course. And that's why he's so readable. That's a pretty good start. We've already got the structure ingrained in us if you come from that cut. Okay, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. And having been brought up in the... I'm not a, a particularly religious person at this stage of my life, but I was brought up young in what Americans call the Episcopal Church, which is the descendant of the Church uh-huh. of England. And so I was brought up on the Book of Common Prayer. And I must say that God didn't take, but the language did. <laughs> it's good language. It is. As, as an actor, you know. It's pretty hard to beat. Very much so. And I think he still speaks to us. Because Muir was, again, we misunderstand Muir. Although he, he liked to observe nature, he was not a biologist. No. Uh, in the end, he was sort of a religious mystic. Muir was reacting to his own upbringing. He had, a very, again, a very strict fundamentalist Christian upbringing. And he believed, he rejected his father's teachings entirely. God was not this thunder and brimstone, uh, you know, punishing God. God was beauty. God mm-hmm. was nature. God was wonder. And that's in the heart of nature. And actually, it was an individual religion. And therefore... Muir makes an excellent secular Bible. You can, like the big old Bible, you can go and just pull out what you want. And yet with the same language and same linguistics. It, it, I mean, it, references it, to cathedrals of, of churches. Yes. And I mean, when he visits the Sequoia, when he visits the big uh-huh. capital B trees, um, it is like he is going to a cathedral. It really so, is. I wouldn't write him off quite yet. <laughs> um, 
Okay, simple question. I say that in inverted commas. What's your favourite species of tree, and is it the big tree? I think there's another tree in the southern Sierra Nevada that is as special, to me some days even more special than the giant sequoias, and gets maybe one-tenth of one percent of the attention. Okay. That's a timberline species uh, called the foxtail pine. What's so special about the foxtail pine? They, well, you've seen them. You just didn't know what they were. When you were on the very top of your hike to Alta Peak, uh-huh. and you climbed above the tree line and up on those big granite slopes, there was an occasional lone tree standing up there fully upright and blasted by the weather and mostly gold and late yellow. Yeah, I know. Those are foxtail pines. Okay. They are very long-lived. They, they live a couple thousand years. They grow in very challenging environments, uh, places where it, well, the, the frost-free season might be 10, 12 weeks of the year, uh, where there's snow on the ground for six to eight months of the year. But they're not, they're not Krumholtz low, standing tall. Because they grow on these ridges, they grow in the most spectacular physical settings you can imagine. Mm-hmm. The tall, you, when you're sitting under a foxtail pond, you're looking off at towering sawtooth peaks all around you, because you're on a peak probably too. The one I'm imagining was on the edge of a glacier that had defrosted, wasn't there at the time, but the right on its, there was like two or three of them, but one right on the edge just of on the rock. Yeah. Growing on a crack in the rock. Exactly. And yet it may be three, four feet in diameter and 50, 60, 80 feet yeah. tall. They're, they're not small. But by the time you see them, you've seen so much bigger trees. Yeah. Like, ah, and it's I, only the biggest tree I hadn't seen yesterday. I, I think they're beautiful trees. I, and again, they are individuals. Each one is. Each one has a different history. When you grow in those settings, you go through the most incredible lives. I suspect, in terms of challenge, huge storms and lightning and all the rest. But they are again, they're durable. They're beautiful. They grow in beautiful settings, uh, and they uh, attract me through their the fact that they don't attract many, and that appeals to me. What is the greatest thing that you achieved whilst you worked up in Kings County in Sequoia? I can tell you the one that I put the most time into, that I felt very good about. And how time, how it will play out over time, I think, is uncertain. Um, I had a rare opportunity as a program manager, I, I hinted at this earlier in the interview, to redesign the commercial facilities in the park. Early in the 20th century, all these cabins and lodges and gas stations and dormitories and everything had been jammed in right among the trees. Mm-hmm. And the sequoia trees are have a long, extensive root seeds. The trees average 250 feet high, and the general biological estimate is the, the root circle of a giant sequoia tree is about the same diameter as the height of the tree. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. So, so when you build in a sequoia grove, you're on top of the roots all the time, and the roots are shallow. Okay? I so, mean, I knew that all, all trees are very shallow roots. They go down about four feet maximum. Mostly, yeah. Um, that's a meter in metric. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't realize they went out that far. Well, it depends on the tree. Sequoias oh. have very extensive root systems. And we had, we had built this huge development. We talked a little about this before within the grove. And had set this idealistic goal that someday it would all go away. Well, I finally was very fortunate, very privileged to end up in charge of the planning program when the money finally came of what we were going to do. Sure. And you don't, I can tell you from the American perspective, it is a very rare perspective, and I was very aware of the significance of what I was doing. You don't very often get to redesign an old line national park. Hmm. And so we did. And you, you actually got to see the results 
Now, when you were at the Giant Forest Museum, there originally had been another 250 buildings around that. You wouldn't know. I no, think you wouldn't. that's what's incredible about it. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. And we, we built instead that Wuxachi Lodge, uh, which is a perfectly nice lodge, probably not as great as the one we tore down in terms of the setting, mm-hmm. but that's the point. It's not in the Sequoia Grove. Yeah, it's removed. It's in a, a much less special, a much less unique setting. And so I mean, it's still pretty special. It's probably There's still so. some giant trees right yeah, there. Yeah. And there were deer roaming across the car park, yeah. I remember, as I was checking the out. The average trees in the Sierra are still really... You know, the average yeah. tree in the... Forget the sequoias. It's not uncommon in the Sierra Nevada to find trees three to five feet in diameter and 200 uh-huh. feet tall. They're just average trees. And it's not just the trees. And one of the things that struck me, not literally, fortunately, but was the size of the sugar pine cones. Cones, yes. Sugar pine cones must be... A foot and a half long. I was about to say 18 inches, I think. <laughs> exactly. But they're, they're huge. Yeah, they can put a good dent in you. I, I heard one behind me. The, not the crack that it made as mm-hmm. it hit the ground was terrible. It's, it's an ancient ranger joke, but it's why rangers wear hats. <laughs> Big flat brims. Um, yeah, one of the things that did, which I still find a bit perverse, is the size of things like the sugar uh, pine cone. But then the sequoia pine cones are really dinky. They're about the size of chicken eggs. Yeah. And of course, they're not sequoia pine cones because sequoias aren't pines. Not pines. Apologies. <laughs> they are. Yeah, they're a tree in their own right. They are sequoia cones. Uh-huh. Yeah. A sequoia has a very small cone, a, a tiny seed. The seeds look about like a flake of rolled oats, and in those little egg-shaped cones, you'll find about two hundred seeds. But we never finished the big job in our discussion. Um, so what we ultimately did, first of all, we re- removed. That was fairly easy. We removed the commercial facilities and relocated them and got to think about what the new ones ought to look like and where mm-hmm. they should go. And that was fairly straightforward. And then it got more complicated. How do you restore the grove? What could you do? We did a fair amount of experimentation and trying to reforest parts that had been opened up by buildings. Successfully? Yes, we tried a number of things, including the, the role of how much we could use fire to jumpstart vegetation. Mm-hmm. And then we had... That, the, the two challenging things were that, natural re- re- restoration, and the other one was... So how do you go back to what visitor experience do you want? Mm-hmm. And so we kept, we made a number of decisions that were compromises toward our dream of restoring the grove. But we weren't restoring the grove to take everyone out of it. We were restoring the grove to make it, again, the premier place to see and experience giant sequoia trees. Different question, different goal mm-hmm. than just nature. And I think what we set out to do, we achieved. And again, was it the biggest thing I achieved? I suppose. But I will now say with some confidence that I think we solved at the end of the 20th century the worst thing that we had done in the 20th century to the trees. But that leaves totally unaddressed the 21st century. And so in the 21st century, it may be that the grove's in the wrong place. We didn't decide where it went. Nature did. Mm -hmm. But nature chose that in another climate regime. That's going to be an entirely different level of challenge. And what does that, go back now, what's the park for? How far should the park go to preserve a natural environment when the natural environment's no longer in the right location environmentally? So are you suggesting that at some point it's going to be mankind's responsibility to transplant or to create a new grove, I would imagine, slightly higher up the mountain range? That has been speculated already about at a good degree. Again, concurrent policy does not allow that in the national parks. Um, but it, the question arises quickly, does it not? Yeah. Um, if the sequoias don't belong here, where do they belong? Further north, further at higher altitudes, or what? 
It also has huge implications of what could you do to mitigate climate change within the three square miles. Do you, if it gets hotter and drier, do you water more? Sequoias have a fair amount of, of they can take a fair amount of stress if they're not too dry. They're, they're water-loving trees. So how far does the natural environment, how far do you go to convert a natural environment to an ecosystem museum? And can, is such a thing truly possible? What you're suggesting is that you believe that over the X number, next X number of years, that that habitat will not be able to sustain them naturally. Is that what you believe? I think the question is, I don't think we have the answer to that. I think the question is, is important and unavoidable. Okay. As I said, a thousand years ago, the trees in greatly reduced numbers were surviving there under a climate as warm and dry as this, but it doesn't appear we're anywhere near done yeah. with our climate change. As I said, you can take us to the next level up. It appears in, the, in a mountain range like the Sierra of California, Sierra Nevada, about every 3,000 feet, about every 1,000 vertical meters, you have an entirely different environment with totally different vegetation. If we go to the edges of climate change, when we're talking 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit change, mm -hmm. you know, 2, 3 degrees centigrade, then fundamentally it's quite simple. Everything in the Sierra Nevada will be in the wrong place. Everything. Except maybe some riparian vegetation along rivers. Right on the riverbanks. Mm -hmm. And in those rocky canyons, there's not a lot of riparian vegetation. Because no. you basically have rocky gorges with, with cliffs. And so are we getting a warning that we've had 66 million trees die? Perhaps. These are the questions. These are the real questions of the 21st century. Sure. Um, in the Uncertain Path book, I speculate, is the sequoia, and I've seen a little of this happen, is the sequoia poised to become a climate change icon? Of something we argue as a... As an example of what's at risk, we're seeing some of that now. It hasn't become as powerful an icon as it might, but it is getting used now in that context. Now, these are the kinds of things we have to lose. But the, the, the truth is, when you step back from the famous stuff, we seem to be poised to lose everything in these kinds of natural environments or semi-natural environments. At least everything will be scrambled and displaced. And then we get, uh, you've read a fair amount of biology, then we get novel ecosystems, right? Mm -hmm. New kinds of ecosystems, fixing things in new ways. And so what's the role of a national park in managing a novel ecosystem? We're back to the policy question. Yeah, it no longer the original outstanding policy of the national park situation here doesn't actually work. Doesn't apply anymore. It becomes redundant. Oddly enough, in that world, it works better in Britain. Yeah. Because you're preserving pastoral man-made landscapes. So yeah. Well, people are still farming in the Lake District National Park. Yeah. They are working lands. They are people's homes. I had a very interesting conversation in the Peak District one day, walking up on the moorlands at the top, in which it was explained to me the history of the peat up there, uh, yeah. of how it had been built up, enormous amounts, and how that resulted from the destruction of the Iron Age forests. So human beings had destroyed the forest and created the peat, and human beings, mm -hmm. as I understood the story began to destroy the peat through the industrialization of Manchester and all the sulfur that went up. There's a big debate going on now about peat um, and its, its destruction and its... And of course, now it's full of carbon dioxide. Yeah, it's, it's a really good carbon sequester. And so what are you preserving up there? Yeah. What's that purpose play? What's that, what do you manage for in a place like that? Hey, you're I, talking to a guy from the New Forest from 1066. So, like. so I have no idea. You know, I think of the environments I've had to manage over years, and that's another level of complexity uh -huh. yet. But on the other hand, there's more flexibility in a system that says that these are man-made landscapes. Yeah. What well, do you think that will be the shift then? Do you think you'll take more from us? 
Perhaps. I think inevitably, we're, I don't think Americans want that, but I think the American park system it will be drug or forced, regardless of its wishes, into realizing that these landscapes are inevitably, they both were more human affected than we thought and are inevitably in the future more managed by us than we might desire, but then we chose this path, so we're going to have to choose to manage for it. There are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, the first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? That's impossible to answer because the <laughs> world is full of great places to go. You've got a month left to live. You've only, you can only go to one place. You've only got one plane ticket. Or you don't even use the plane ticket. As usual, I will dodge the questions. Of course I, you will. <laughs> I will tell you the places I have gone back to throughout my life. How's okay. That? Okay. The place I've gone back to most consistently is the High Sierra. I have hiked... The High Sierra annually, overnight wilderness mm -hmm. trips since the middle 1960s. The High Sierra is where exactly? The High Sierra is the high is the subalpine and alpine range of the Sierra Nevada. It's the highest altitude parts of Sequoia, Kings Canyon, and Yosemite, and the zone in between called, of course, the John Muir Wilderness. Mm -hmm. But it's that zone above nine or ten thousand feet in the Sierra Nevada, where, again, from an American perspective, it's about nine or ten thousand feet that we begin to talk about high country. Sure, it's it's it's, it's a different scale. But I, I've, you know, I started walking, the first big hike, Trans-Sierra hike in 1966. I already have on my calendar this summer's trip at the end of the summer with my friends, and we'll be out again at, at a camp at 11,000 feet for a week or 10 days enjoying the high country. The other place I've gone back to over and over again repeatedly uh, is simply walking in the giant forest. I think it is one of the most astounding forests anywhere on Earth. You know, there are many different kinds of forests on this wonderful planet, and... They all have their charms, but I think for sheer grandeur, for ability to perceive uh, time and the how nature progresses on its own scale beyond what we do, I think it's a wonderful place. Plus, it's a really benign, beautiful place. Mm -hmm. It has a nice climate. It's fun to walk around in. It's fun to ski around in the winter on, on skis. I'm right in saying that John Muir gave it, gave it its name as the Giant Forest. Uh, he appears to. He claimed to. Everything has a backstory. Okay. Yeah, the Giant Forest, the official name, in a book published in 1901, um, John Muir says, and then I named it the Giant Forest. Um, but that was from a visit in the early 1870s. And if you go back and read the newspaper articles he wrote in the early 1870s, he at that point was making his living uh, writing for newspapers as a, a sort of a descriptive journalist, mm -hmm. um, he talked about the for he talked about the Southern Sierra as made up of the giant forests with with no capital letters. Sure. So he seems to have sort of focused that title much later onto that particular place, and so we generally give him primacy in the name, but uh, it's one of those slightly suspect little stories. Second question: um, Should it's a strange one? You'll find this one weird. Um, should we colonize the moon? There seem to be more important things to do. Colonizing the moon seems to be a way to avoid here. Uh, I would think that money would be better spent on Earth. What I see now is colonizing... Well, let me play with your word. Colonization is almost universally done for profit, is it not? Is that not the, the premise of that word? I think it's fair to say, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is... You asked the question in a way that I would tend to define it anyway. If you said settling the moon, I would probably drift toward interpreting this colonization. And colonization is done for profit. And if we're just rushing off to the moon to make a profit, well, we know how well that turned out here. So um, wouldn't be my first priority. Okay. And if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? 
Well, you can dream about lots of fun things, but the, the problem with all that is that the great majority of things cannot be brought back from extinction without the environments in which they existed. Most of them disappeared because their environments were destroyed. Yeah, it'd be, you know, I see all this speculation of bringing back mammoths, but mammoths aren't a whole lot of good unless you have a fair number of them and giant um, Arctic tundra areas to let them wander upon. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a whole other question, is it not? Nobody's talking about that particularly. Uh, there are lots of fascinating animals. I think they were talking about it. I think they talked about it quite a lot a while ago, and therefore everyone then got bored and they wanted to talk about something else for a change. Mm -hmm. I was just reading a book a few weeks ago about the the Pleistocene, talk about obscure stuff, but this, you know, the world's full of interesting mm -hmm. things if you simply dig. A wonderful book about the Pleistocene fauna of the Great Basin of North America, which is the area between the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra, the, the high uplands of Nevada and Utah, which up to the end of the Pleistocene and the arrival of human beings in North America had the most astounding creatures. You know, we had flat, some of them were also in Europe, flat-faced bears, um, you know, giant lions half as big as the ones that survived in Africa, mammoths and mastodons, a mylodon ground sloths that stood 15 feet tall mm -hmm. on their back legs and marched across the landscape. Talk about choices for preservation or re restoration. But then again, they need the world they lived in, don't yeah. they? Well, I'll let you bring back that world too, then. <laughs> the, perhaps the only joy I get from ever visiting Los Angeles is going to the La Brea Tartics. And some of these animals are in La Brea. Oh, it's, it's astounding, the creatures that they've discovered yeah. living there. If ever there were a message to send to mm -hmm. Angelinos, it's, look at this dark pit of destruction full of creatures and look at what you replaced it with with your concrete monstrosities did we say dark pit no we didn't describe la that way did we We just did play it <laughs> we Wonderful. didn't say it william thank you very much indeed it's been a pleasure thank hugely pleasure. appreciated thank you nothing more to say than to wish a sequoia sized thank you to Bill and to his wife, Frances, who both couldn't have looked after me more warmly if they tried when I went up to see them in Bend. I spent two days talking to Bill and to Frances, both on and off microphone, and believe me when I say that this is really just a scratch of the surface of the amazing things they had to share. If you'd like to know more about Bill and indeed the amazing history of the big trees themselves, then I can heartily recommend any number of his great books. I started with his King Sequoia, uh, which I found particularly exciting as it shone a spotlight on how one of these California giants was transported across to near where I live in Sydenham in southeast London and was put on display for gawping Victorians to ogle at. An illustration of this incongruous site is up now on our website at treesacrowd.fm along with my usual blog for this and other episodes. The only thing left to say is that these great American national parks are truly a sight to behold. Should you ever get the chance to visit, to hide in these vast wildernesses and to quietly hug some of the largest trees in the world, over 3,000 years old, then do. Just do. Anyway, thank you again for listening and we'll be back again very soon. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, 